to noticing all of this going on. And basically when he sits there and he looks down at his dinner, and then he knows what's coming later on that night with all the snacks and things, there's no way in the world he's going to touch that dinner. That chocolate is way too tempting. He knows all the snacks that are coming. All of a sudden, those green beans, you know, they don't look so good. (laughs) You know, we're tempted all the time. You know, I'm tempted to lie, to be greedy, to not love people as I should. You name it. I'm tempted all the time. Of course, we talk a lot about sexual temptation. Because it's, you know, much more visible, you see it easily. But there are many other ways in which we're tempted. There was a recent survey of people and they listed what their top temptations were. Number one was material. Self-centeredness. Number four, laziness. Number five, and this was a tie, between anger and sexual lust. Next came envy, then gluttony, then lying. Now think about that just for a minute. Which of those is the biggest temptation for you? Materialism, pride, centeredness, laziness, anger, sexual lust, envy, gluttony, lying. If you're like me, I honestly don't think about temptation that much. That's strange, isn't it? C.S. Lewis made a very insightful observation about temptation. He said, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Do you hear what he said? Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. That makes me think that maybe I don't resist temptation enough. That makes me think that maybe we don't resist it enough to know how strong it is. What is the heart of temptation? What is at the core of what temptation really is in our daily lives? How can we become more sensitive to it? How can we recognize it? And what can we do to combat it? That's what we want to look at this morning. C.S. Lewis went on to say about temptation, he said, Christ... Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation. Man who knows to the full what temptation means. One of the most intense in Jesus' life 
It's a story of his life that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 4. So you can turn to your Bibles right now. Matthew chapter 4. In this story we find what the core trap is of temptation and a way of escape from it. You see, I think that temptation is sort of like a bear trap. You know what those look like? Those spring-loaded things that are just sitting out there in the forest waiting for you to come by? And then, snap. You're wounded. You're broken. That's what temptation's like. It's sitting there waiting for us like a trap. Now this is what Jesus is going to face in Matthew chapter 4. If you look back in chapter 3, you'll see that right before this, we get the story of Jesus' baptism, where God announces that Jesus is his son and that he's well pleased with him. And this story we're going to see is also going to introduce us in Matthew 4 to a new character named the devil. He is Diabolos, and that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Satan. And this is very significant that Jesus was announced as God's son, that God was well pleased with, and then Satan comes on the scene. It reminds us a lot, back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and the story of Adam. You see, Jesus is Jesus going to be like Adam? Is Jesus going to fall like Adam fell? Is he going to be able to resist Satan or not? That's the question. In fact, the... T- more hurting position than Adam was at the time because Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and in fact has been tempted over these 40 days. And so he's at an even bigger disadvantage than Adam was. Jesus is hungry. He's physically exhausted. And this new character, Satan, comes to tempt him. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty nights and 40, uh, forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only, you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Look back at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit 
trouble. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. This is the backdrop to what, as we look into the details of these temptations. And we see that the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus out into the desert so that he could be tempted. And and Luke actually tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And that, in fact, Jesus was being tempted over all of those 40 days. And so what we have recorded here, these temptations are really, at the very end of it all, the pinnacle of all the temptations are these three that are recorded for us. And this 40 days is also significant, not only because Jesus, in a way, is being tested like Adam is tested, but it's also a picture, it's a lesson for the nation of Israel, because they had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and during that time, God had been testing them. So in a sense, Jesus is also reliving that experience that they had. What he proved to be faithful to God, as the nation of Israel had not been able to do, what he proved to be their Messiah, the king that would lead them into righteousness, that's also part of the picture here behind the scenes. This is an important theme that Matthew wants to develop. And Jesus is even at a greater disadvantage than the nation of Israel had been because God had been feeding them miraculously with manna. You remember those stories? But here Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And it's at this great moment of weakness after having suffered through these temptations for 40 days, after being so hungry, that the tempter prepares to strike. Now, when we think about this, that the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus out to be tempted, that opens up a couple of questions for us. First of all, why would God test Jesus? Why would the Father test the Son? Why would the Spirit lead Jesus into this temptation? The Bible is clear that God is never the source of our temptations. But God does allow us to be tempted. The Bible explains that temptation can come from a couple of places. First of all, our own desires and ourselves cause plenty of temptation for us. And secondly, Satan can tempt us. But God allows these temptations so that we can grow up in our Christian faith. Just like a father disciplines his children, God uses these temptations to make us more righteous when everything's said and done and we've gone through the experience. But you say, well, that's great, but Jesus is very different than me. How does our experience of temptation connect with the Son of God? He's obviously no ordinary man. And this is a little tricky. Because we have to also keep in mind when we read this story that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. My guess is that we don't have such a problem understanding that he's fully God as we do with coming to terms with the reality that he was also fully man at the same time. It's true that Jesus didn't inherit sin from Adam like we do. But Jesus was fully human. And that means that he had the capacity to do a lot of different things, just like Adam had. And the point is that these two were not light. He felt them and experienced them just like we do. 
He was really hungry. He was really tired. He was in a real struggle with the devil. But he stayed in the wilderness and continued to persevere under this testing. Could Jesus have sinned? No. He was fully God and incapable of sin. But that doesn't mean that his testing was any, real, any less real than the testing that you and I go through. Now that may sound strange, but even think about our own sin. When I sin, is God surprised? No. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows, even beforehand, that I'm going to sin. But does that mean that it doesn't hurt God when I sin? No. It hurts him every single time when one of his children turn their back on him. He experiences it just like you and I would experience it. Hebrews 4.15 says, when it's talking about Jesus, we have a high priest, it's, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. He experienced it like you and me. That verse tells us that no matter what type of sin you are struggling with, Jesus has experienced that same type of sin. And we could spend a whole morning talking about that. But after being tempted for these 40 days, after fasting for 40 days, we've reached the climax of Jesus' testing. The Spirit had brought Jesus to this point of confrontation with the the master of enticing men to sin. And we read that first temptation in verses 3 and 4. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, and really this is better translated, the devil doesn't doubt the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the way the Greek is constructed here. It really is better translated since. Since you are the Son of God, Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The first test was basically this. Forget about denying yourself and waiting for God to supply your physical needs. You should provide and protect for yourself all on your own. Making food, if Jesus had turned the stones into bread, that in and of itself, that's not wrong. Jesus would go on in his ministry to multiply miraculously all kinds of food for thousands of people, proving the point that God does care for everyone's needs. But we read that God purposely brought Jesus to this point that he was full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit led him out into the desert to deny himself and to go through this temptation. This fasting was something that God had brought him to do. The Spirit must have moved Jesus to do that, to fast so that he could concentrate more on his Father and overcoming this testing. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 in reply to Satan. He basically says, the word of God is really more fundamental for life than food. The context for that verse, if you look back in Deuteronomy, 
is that the God, God had made the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And that passage explains that God did that for two reasons. First of all, that it might humble them. And secondly, to know their hearts, to know that they would be obedient to the commands He had given them in the law. So Jesus uses this verse to tell the devil, God has brought me here to the desert. I'm willing to humble myself and fast and be obedient to God. I'm not willing to sell my obedience for some bread because I'm hungry. I will trust in God to provide for those needs in His timing. Just as He cared for my people before when He provided manna, clothing, and health for them. And that leads us to point one this morning. Obedience to God's Word is best for our well-being. Fulfilling desires apart from God is harmful. I really struggled with how to word this properly. (laughs) I don't think I quite got it. But being obedient to God's Word is really what is best for our life. It brings a fuller experience of life for us. And if we go and try to fulfill our desires, even though those desires may not in and of themselves be wrong, if we are fulfilling them in a way that God doesn't want us to do it, then it's going to be harmful for us. Here Jesus is telling even at such a basic level as hunger, if it's really not what God wants you to do, then you shouldn't do it even at such a basic level as hunger. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm hungry, I'm willing to do just about anything, right? <laughs> it pushes us to the limit. But if Jesus could resist even that desire in himself, then certainly we can resist other things that aren't nearly as primal inside of us. Let's consider a couple examples of stealing, for, for instance. Second Thessalonians 3 tells us to work really hard. It says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. It's very straightforward. And this is in the context of a church where some people were not working and they were basically mooching off of the other people who were working really hard. Now, who of us really wants to work? I mean, if we were to follow our own desires. We have a lot of other things that we might rather do. Working is typically not a lot of fun. It requires discipline. It makes you tired. But God's Word says that working hard will bring us more fulfillment and happiness than laziness. So, do I do what God's Word says or do I give in to my desires? Here's another example of stealing. Having a lawyer mentality today that's very prevalent. What is right is what I can legally get away with. Especially when it comes to money, I should sue anyone and everyone even if my own behavior is the real reason for my trouble. There's a good example of this that happened in Tucson. I read in the paper. If you drive to Tucson on I-10, you'll actually reach a point where there's this sort of a landmark. It's a mountain that sticks up. And underneath it is an ostrich farm. (laughs) People will remember this place. This guy had a great big ostrich farm and his idea was basically to raise these ostriches, sell the meat and he was going to become wealthy from that. 
Apparently, uh, ostrich meat is very like low fat and all this stuff, and some cultures really like it. Well, hot air balloonists came through where his ostrich farm was. And ostriches, whether you know this or not, very strange. They live in really close families, and it takes them years to develop these bonds with each other. Well, these hot air balloonists came flying through his farm, and the ostriches went crazy. They stampeded. They all ran, knocked down all the fences. Many of them were killed in the stampede. And as a result of that, they lost all of their family bonds that they had been developing for years that was so necessary for him to grow this ostrich farm. Now, the hot air balloonists didn't do anything illegal. They were flying in the open air there in the desert. They were flying at the proper height that was required of them to do. They had no idea that it was going to cause this problem for his ostriches. But he sued them for millions of dollars. And when it's all said and done, he lost the case. And now he has legal fees that are over $100,000. And he's totally broke. You see, he was just upset at what he had lost. And he let that desire drive him. What would have brought more life to this ostrich farmer? To have gone through all of this fighting over money because he was upset when it was really no one's fault? Or to have accepted his loss like Job did in the Bible? Remember him? He lost everything. Lost his family. His health. And yet we read in Job 1.20 that Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's point one this morning. Obedience to God's word is really what's best for our well-being. But Satan's not done yet. Since Jesus has brought up the idea of God's word as being so important, Satan now selectively uses the Bible to challenge Jesus again. Look at verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. There's a debate here. We don't know if this was a visionary experience or Satan literally took him. As we'll see later on in the story, he takes him up on an exceeding high mountain so he can see everything. Is this a visionary experience? We're not sure. But even if it's just a vision that he's seeing, if he stood on the highest point of the temple that he could fall off, it would be a drop of over 400 feet at the time. So the devil took him to Jerusalem on top of the temple and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down. You know what the Bible says. It says, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus really quotes here Deuteronomy 6.16 in response. After Satan has selectively quoted Psalm 91 to Jesus. And if 
if you look back in the context of the quote that Jesus uses, it was the experience of Israel at Massa. And this was basically a place that God had commanded the Israelites to move. They moved there, and there was no water for the people. And so they came to Moses, and they started complaining to him. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to this place where there's no water, just so that we can die, and everything that we have, all of our animals can die too? And Moses, of course, has to go to God and say, look, the people are complaining, what do you want me to do? And God tells him to strike the rock and water is provided for the people. But if you look into that passage, you'll see that it's even revealed what was going on in their hearts. And they were saying in their hearts, is the Lord among us or not? That's what they were really thinking. Is the Lord among us or not? They were challenging whether or not God really cared for them when they were challenging Moses to do something about their situation. What the devil tempts Jesus to do almost sounds pious, doesn't it? God says he's going to protect you. So why not jump off of this, show your faith, and God will deliver you. But really, if Jesus did that, that was not faith. It was a lack of faith. Because he would really be testing God. And that's point two this morning. That we can trust that God cares for us without testing him. When we try to force God into acting based on his love for us, we are really testing him. Have you ever done this? I'm going to do something with my life that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I know that God loves me. I know that God cares for me. And I know he'll help me out in the end. That's not faith and God's love for you or his care for you. But a challenge to his goodness. Who are we to go and try to force God to do anything? There's a lot of story in the news about Natalie, the one who went to Aruba, and um, seems that she was murdered. It's a terrible situation. But I have to tell you my honest reaction when I first heard the story. I turned to my wife and I said, "Over my dead body, would my teenage daughter go down to Aruba <laughs> to party all night long? To think that I would pay for something like that?" That was my initial reaction. Now, maybe this isn't a good example for what I'm trying to explain to you here. But oftentimes we act like that. We take these huge risks thinking, oh, but God cares for us. And we keep that in the back of our minds. And, and he, he cares for me. He's going to help me get through things. things. Life is going to be good, even though I do things that don't make any sense. But when you're living that way, you're actually testing God. We can trust that God cares for us without testing Him. Now, Jesus is unwilling to disobey, and He's unwilling to test God in any way. Perhaps there is something that Satan can offer Him so that He will just reject God altogether. That's what we see in the final temptation. Look at verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took Him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, 
All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Basically, the test of Jesus is this Worship Satan and enjoy all of the world's power and prestige right now. I'll give it to you right now if you'll just bow down and worship me. After all, you're the Son of God. You're supposed to have all these things. It's promised to you in the Bible. Places like Psalm 2.8, Daniel 7.14, they promise that you are going to rule over this earth. What Satan offered Jesus was a fast track to that experience. If you look in the Bible, this is the experience, of course, that Paul calls the man of sin. It's described in the Bible. This will be the experience that he will get to experience. He's going to worship Satan and Satan's going to give him rule over this earth. Satan was saying, forget going to the cross and dying. Forget suffering. Forget serving other people. Forget dealing with those loser disciples you have. Forget putting up with all those who will reject you and who refuse to believe in you. To get all the world's glory and power, Jesus would have to break his allegiance to God and accept the authority and sovereignty of Satan. But we see Jesus' answer. He won't do it. There's only one God that he's going to worship. The one true God. And that's point three this morning. That worshiping God alone is more valuable than all of the world's money and power. Now imagine that for a moment. If I came to you and I put before you all the wealth of the world, all of the power, all of the prestige, all the prestige of a Hollywood actor, I can make you more famous than Jessica Simpson. I could give you more power than George Bush. I could make you wealthier than Bill Gates. Is worshiping God more valuable to us than all that? If Jesus said no to all that, and he could have taken it, then obviously we should say no to the little temptations for money, for power, for fame. You know those little things that come along for us that we can take advantage of? We should be able to say no to those things too. Anything that takes away our service to God is something we have to say no to. Worshiping God is more valuable than all of the world's money and power. Look at verse 11. This is the conclusion of the story. Then the devil left him 
And behold, angels came and ministered to him. After Satan had challenged Jesus' love and care for, for Jesus, after Satan had challenged all that, of course, we see at the end of the story that God does care for him greatly. And his angels come and minister to Jesus' needs. He would no longer be hungry. He would no longer have to go through this intense temptation. So point one this morning was obedience to God's word is really what's best for our well-being. When we go out and try to fulfill our own desires on our own, that's only going to hurt us. Point number two trust that God cares for us without having to test Him. And third, worshiping God is more valuable than all of the world's money and power. If we boil it all down this morning, what is the heart of temptation? What is at the core of it so that we can recognize it and fight it? I think really it's just a simple question that you can trace through each of these temptations of Jesus. Does God really know what is best for me? Does God really know what is best for me? When we're tempted, that's really the ultimate question that we're asking. We're saying, you know, God doesn't want me to do this. He wants me to do something else. Does he really know what's best for me? That's at the heart of every temptation. And so I think the key to overcoming temptation, and this is something that we need to remind ourselves every day, is to have faith in God and a faith that says, Yes, God, you always know what is best for me. We need to tell ourselves that every day. I'm going to live today, and when I face all these situations, I'm going to trust that God really does know what's best for me. And that means that I need to say no to certain things. It means I need to say yes to other things. But if you want to overcome temptation, you have to trust that God knows a better way for you. It's not all that different than when you were a teenager. You remember those days? (laughs) It's been a long time now. My parents would tell me no. They would tell me that I couldn't go somewhere, I couldn't do something, or I couldn't be around this certain group of people. Now let me tell you, when they tell me not to do something, that's when I want to do it the most. And it's burning inside of me. But the fundamental question that you have to come to terms with as a kid is, do you trust that your parents really know what's best for you? Or are you going to go your own way? It's the same way with our Heavenly Father and with us. The key to overcoming temptation is a faith in God that says, Yes, God, you always know what's best for me. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this.